0: I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is there such a thing as good anxiety? Tell me if this sounds familiar. I think just about everyone, at least once, has experienced that kind of palm-sweating, heart-thumping, mind-racing anxiety, just like I'm sure that everyone has experienced anxiety in its milder forms, a knot in your stomach, a tremor in your voice, a vague sense of impending doom. It's no wonder then that most of us have concluded that anxiety is bad news, but not Wendy Suzuki. A few years ago, Wendy, who's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU, noticed that there seemed to be an anxiety crisis among her students. She decided to figure out why. And as she dug into the research, she came to a startling conclusion. Everyone was always talking about avoiding anxiety or getting rid of it altogether. And sure, that makes sense when you consider that anxiety, in its most extreme form, can be absolutely debilitating but our brains didn't develop their anxious tendencies for the sole purpose of making us miserable. Anxiety, Wendy says, is actually essential to our survival. It's the mechanism our brains developed for detecting threats. It causes us to pay attention, analyze the danger we perceive, and decide if we're gonna fight, flee, or freeze. From the perspective of a hunter-gatherer, anxiety was a good thing. It forced them to perk up and figure out if that twig snap they just heard was caused by a harmless squirrel, or a menacing tiger. There are just two problems. First, these days, most of us don't encounter many menacing tigers in our daily environments. Second, our bodies can't differentiate between real and imagined stress. That means non-threatening scenarios can trip our anxiety triggers and send us into a downward spiral of unwarranted angst. Luckily though, Wendy says we can harness the latest findings in neuroscience to get off the anxiety merry-go-round. In her new book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion, Wendy writes, Anxiety really does work like a form of energy. Think of it as a chemical reaction to an event or situation. Without trustworthy resources, training, and timing, that chemical reaction can get out of hand, but it can also be controlled and used for valuable good. At the end of last year... We asked our Next Big Idea Club members to tell us what author they would most like to hear from. And at the top of their list was Wendy Suzuki. They asked and we listened. Today, we're sharing audio of the virtual event we hosted to celebrate the release of Good Anxiety. For this event, Wendy sat down with Lauren Miller Rogan. Lauren is a writer, director, and actress who's appeared in films like Superbad and TV shows like Grey's Anatomy. She wrote and directed the 2018 Netflix film Like Father, which starred Kristen Bell, Kelsey Grammer, and Lauren's husband, Seth Rogen. Lauren and Seth also worked together to establish the nonprofit Hilarity for Charity. It provides a range of free services to support families impacted by Alzheimer's, and it counts Wendy as one of its scientific advisors. This event was moderated by our producer, Caleb Bissinger, so you'll hear from him a few times, too. I'll admit, when I first heard the term good anxiety, I thought it was an oxymoron. But after listening to Wendy, Lauren, and Caleb chat, I'm convinced that there's a lot I can and should be doing to take control of my anxiety. And sometimes all it takes is walk around the block, a fart joke, or a tweet from Lynn manuel Miranda.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
2: Well, thank you both so much for being here. I want to start by saying, you know, I think most of us, we've been sort of acculturated into this view that anxiety is inherently bad. And that when we feel anxious or worried, it's actually a moral failure on our part that somehow we have failed to to summon the resolve or the willpower or the strength to keep our worries at bay. And one of the things I found so uplifting about your book, Wendy, is that you say 90% of people experience some kind of anxiety on a regular basis. And so my first question for both of you is what are you two feeling anxious about today?
3: I'll go first. I'm applying for a big job and I'm nervous for my interview. So I'm anxious. I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. So very common thing. Um, the bigger the position, the more the anxiety. So that's, that's what's on my mind today. That's a good one. On my mind is
4: a call I have right after this uh, with a studio. I'm writing a script for Netflix, and it's a call about a script that I'm writing. And uh, notes on the next draft, yada, yada. And um, I will give them some of my thoughts, and that's always a little scary. So I have anxiety about that uh, at the moment.
3: (laughs) Etsy, everybody has it. I said 90%. We we covered our, our stat here.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm not anxious at all. Oh, you're
3: not? not. Oh, good. Come on. No, I'm so anxious to be
2: here. I'm so anxious to be here and not to make a fool of myself. You know, Wendy, something I was thinking as I was reading the book is something that we're hearing all the time now in the news is – It's sort of time for us to learn to live with COVID, right? We've entered the endemic phase of the pandemic where we recognize that we cannot eradicate COVID, Mm -hmm. but that we have these incredible tools. We have vaccines, we have boosters, we have social initiatives, we have rapid tests, we have antivirals. We can use these Mm -hmm. to help sort of mitigate the risk and avoid the worst possible outcomes. And it struck me that that is actually sort of an analogy for how you think about anxiety, which is that we can't eradicate anxiety. And in fact, we may not want to eradicate anxiety. There are things about it that we can use to really motivate ourselves. But what we can do is rely on neuroscientific tools to get a grasp over our anxiety and to not let it control us. What, what do you think? Is that a good analogy? Is that my off base here?
3: No, no, that, that is a great way to think about it. We want to use the science as much as we can to understand what it is, Anxiety is a natural human emotion. You're right. We're never going to get rid of it. How are we going to use it? And the whole book is both an invitation to say, hey, you know, everybody has anxiety. There's no shame, even though I know many people carry shame around anxiety. Um, but so many people have it. It is a natural human emotion. And what I try to do to normalize anxiety is show you, The gifts or superpowers that come from it. And I know we're going to start talking about that a little bit later with Lauren. Amazing. I'm I'm so
4: excited to dive in. Um, I thought maybe actually we could start with why you chose anxiety. You know, I became familiar with you through your previous work about exercise in the brain, and and we'll touch on that a bit later if we have Mm -hmm. time. But how did this, you know, idea to focus on anxiety, good anxiety, how did it begin?
3: Yeah, so most people think, oh, you must have started writing right as the pandemic started because, you know, maybe you were anxious. And the fact is that we finished the first draft of this book before the pandemic started. And I wanted to focus on anxiety because I had noticed increased levels of anxiety in my NYU students. It's not just NYU, but anxiety levels in college students in general had been going up. This is a a well-described fact. Then I realized, actually, it's not just the students. It's my friends, my colleagues, myself, if I was being honest. And I thought, this is something that everybody's kind of carrying around their neck. I wanted to dive in. I wanted to try and understand it deeper. So that's why I originally dove into anxiety, and then the pandemic hit. And so talk about the right topic for the right time, um, because these tools and Getting that anxiety level down is more important than ever uh, because, of course, anxiety levels overall, clinical levels, everyday anxiety levels just went up, shot up um, when the pandemic started.
4: How can anxiety, because, you know, when I got your book and the cover and I read the back and, you know, and I know you yeah. and your work, whatever. And I was like, well, yeah. you know, I have anxiety and dealt with anxiety and, and, and depression and um, over the years and different issues or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. well, how can it be good? And, you know, and you're, yeah. you made it the title. So yes.
3: tell us. <laughs> so here's the 30 second answer. Why is anxiety good? Anxiety is good because from an evolutionary perspective, anxiety and that underlying physiological stress response that we're all too familiar with evolved over the last 2.5 million years to protect us. It's, in fact, critical for our survival. So think about uh, um, a woman 2.5 million years ago with, with a little baby and uh, there's a little twig that cracks. Well, that could be a lion, that could be a tiger, that could be a bear. She immediately gets anxious. Uh, she, her, her physiological response shunts blood to her uh, muscles so that she could either run away or fight, that is survive. Today, we don't have very many lions and tigers and bears attacking us, but instead we have the news feed, we have social media, we have uh, the threat of global warming, and of course we have the pandemic. Those are not bodily dangers to us, but the fact is that we respond in the same way, which means that that response that was protective is now just over the top. In our society, our anxiety level have just gone way overboard. And so the big part of the book is learning, based on science, how to turn those anxiety levels down. So I don't know whether you use this, Lauren, but my go-to approach is really an activation of your de-stressing part of your nervous system. Did you know that you had a de-stressing part of your nervous system? Everybody knows about fight or flight. Did you know about rest and digest? It's it's the de-stressing <laughs> part. It's, it's the parasympathetic nervous system. And while that fight or flight increases your heart rate, increases respiration, and shunts blood to your muscles, rest and digest decreases your heart rate. It decreases your respiration, and it shunts blood back to your digestion and reproductive organs just in time for Sunday brunch. So you can really digest that beautiful meal. So how do you activate that? Everybody should be saying, well, let me activate that. The best way to activate that is to breathe deeply. Imagine monks for the last thousands of years, they didn't know the term parasympathetic nervous system, but they knew that deep, long breathing brought them into calm, brought them into focus. So here's what I do. It is a boxed breathing technique. So it's an inhale on a four count, hold at the top for four counts, exhale on four counts, and hold at the bottom for four counts. So easy to do. You can do it with your husband, with your son, with your daughter, with your friends. Practice it and bring it up when you start feeling those feelings of anxiety.
4: I love that. I've actually... So you know, many years, my therapist and other doctors and brain health experts like yourself have been like, you "Yeah, yeah, meditation practice. Are you meditating? Are you meditating?" And I've stopped and started and begun again mm-hmm. many times over. Yes, and I've begun again uh, four weeks ago, and I, I'm happy to say I'm, I'm. I think I'm. I think today is day like 17 in a row or something like that. Great. So, so going well, and you know, and it's frustrating to admit these things, but it helps, and it yes. does, and yeah, and. Training my brain, you know, to, like you said, have a breathing practice or mm. just literally do the work to bring yourself back to a baseline, yes breath an object, whatever it is. Um, and as a writer, I experience a lot of anxiety around my chosen profession, and it's my chosen profession that I wouldn't want to do anything else. Yeah, but I have so much anxiety when I sit down at the computer mm. to work on a script, and I have something that I've been working on for. So long and it's so overdue and it's so stressful. And I was listening to your book the other day when I had to work on it at, this was last week. And I was like, uh-huh. listen to your book. And I was like, all right, before, when I pull up the document, instead of being like, I don't want to do this, I'm so stressed out. I won't think of any ideas. How will I answer these notes? These notes are not good. I'm not going to be able to do it. I took a breath and I summoned what was inside me, which is I'm a good writer. Yeah, I could do this. Also, I like writing. Mm. Reminded myself that I don't want to be doing anything else. How lucky mm. am I to do this? And it really like yeah. lowered the anxiety I had about sitting down to do that work. And so it really did feel very practical to do yeah. that. Um, I mean, you have a lot of amazing tools that you mention in the book, like how to worry well. I think mm-hmm. is something you know. It all goes back to it being your superpower, which I love, by the way. Yeah, um, it's so important. To know how to do that. You know, if I'm yeah. naturally has some anxiety and has depression, that that's okay. Those I can use those tools in a good way. And I love that about you, book. So, okay. Tell exactly. us how do, how do we worry well?
3: <laughs> well, you just gave a beautiful example of how to approach worrying well. What you did was the classic mindset shift instead of, Oh, I suck. I, I'm never going to do this. Like you rock. Lauren Miller-Rogan, you are an amazing writer. Um, somebody, I was on another podcast and somebody said, what if you talk to yourself like you talk to your dog? Aren't you a good dog? Oh my God, you're so amazing. It's like, I love that idea. Um, And, and that's that's really what it is. Can you shift your inner dialogue? And I am embarrassed and shocked to, to realize how negative I am. I, what a meanie I am to myself. And uh, does that help or hurt my anxiety? Well, it causes my anxiety, but it's a very ingrained habit. You have to get in the habit of just observing that. And as you did, instead of saying those things uh, that are negative towards your writing, switch that up. You are an excellent writer. You love writing. Go into it with that. Mindset. Be your own best coach. And and everybody's had coaches. You don't have to have gone to expensive, you know, executive coaches. You know, your, your aunt or uncle, whoever was that person that always encouraged you and saw what was so good and powerful in you. Can you give that to yourself a little bit? That will go such a long
4: way. Yeah. I've always been the kind of person who's maybe said some pretty unkind things to myself Mm -hmm. um, over the years. And I have a good friend who's been my friend since I was eight years old. I can remember being like a young teenager, even before then. And she would make me stand. She would like grab my shoulders and put me in front of a mirror. And she'd be like, say something nice about yourself. Say something nice. Compliment yourself. And, you know, and it's so funny to think about. But like, but those were literally like physical moments to, yeah. to knock me out of whatever I was cycling through or whatever, you know, emotional treadmill I was on at the moment, probably about some boy or something. Mm. And like, you know, and, and it helped. Um, you know, I just love the like worrying well and joy conditioning. These things are really, they feel practical. And I yes. think- that's, can, it can feel really daunting to be like, I'm anxious, I, I'm depressed, where do we even begin? Yeah. Um, and you make it very practical in your book, which I think is so helpful.
3: Yeah. Well, joy conditioning is my favorite nerdy uh, tool for how to worry well. I'm so proud of this one. I thought of it all by myself. And it's really, um, it originated in my my, you know, my career long study of how memory works. And so here's the thing, we have different memory systems in our brain. And in fact, we have one specialized for all those negative uh, memories, negative emotions, uh, centered on a structure called the amygdala. And what the amygdala does for us is called fear conditioning. So for example, when I lived in Washington DC, my apartment was burgled and I walked around the corner on a Sunday afternoon coming home and I still can picture the door um, uh, crowbarred open. It was, it was open. You can tell the crowbar mark was there. And for the rest of the time I lived there, every time I came around that same corner that I did every single day, I would have this memory. That is fear conditioning. And it's, it's protective, kind of like anxiety. It's like, okay, be be careful. This, this could happen. And so that happens. And we carry around all these examples of fear conditioning that happens in our normal life. Well, I thought, How come we don't have something, some memory that automatically happens when something good happens? And we don't. But because I know how that kind of memory works, I came up with this tool. It's called joy conditioning. And here's how it works. All you have to do is go and think about one of the happiest, most joyful, funniest memories in your life. First of all, this should make you realize, oh my God, I never think about my joyous memories in my life. How come, how come I don't do that? Right. How come that's not a thing?
2: I lie awake at three in the morning, (laughs) sweating, thinking about all the fun I've had.
3: Who who does that? Right. And so that, that exercise in itself is great. And so Think about that, that funny time that you had with your cousin or your friend, sit standing in front of a mirror when she says, you know, say something good about yourself. And, um... The more you bring up, that's called an episodic memory, and it's dependent on a brain structure called the hippocampus. The hippocampus puts together the who, what, where, and when, but also those emotions associated with it. And the thing about those kinds of memories is the more you bring it up, the stronger that episode becomes, including those good feelings of joy or happiness. And so if you practice that at 3 in the morning, you do think through the funniest, tonight's my funny memories, that will just, you know, your brain is going to respond. You're going to have those same kinds of emotions. And so this is not something that you can necessarily do in the midst of an anxiety attack, but it's something that you can do in the background instead of Worrying about something that is not, you know, deep anxiety. Why don't you get into the practice of bringing up these wonderful memories and playing with them? And once I've done this regularly and it's like you recall all the best parts of your lives. Like, how come I didn't relive this before? So thank you for bringing that up. That is, that is what, that is my favorite tool. I'll say in, in the whole toolbox. <laughs> I love that. Um, you said something that reminded me
4: and I, I want to make sure we cover, you know, obviously joy conditioning is, is really important, but you know, as you said, like, you know, sometimes in a certain moment, that's not necessarily possible. Yeah. Um, last year I was supposed to direct a movie and worked on it for many, many months. And then one day out of nowhere, it was no longer. And it was a bit traumatic and it, it was, uh, was honestly really knocked me into a place for a good, healthy couple of months. Mm. And it was pretty upsetting And I was not in a place where joy conditioning would have helped much. Yeah. Talk to us about those moments where, you know, acceptance, living with it, how Mm -hmm. that that sort of can help you navigate through those darker times.
3: Yeah, yeah. So the first thing I'd like to say about that is that we as humans were not made to live in 100% joy. That's just not the reality. We are complex beings and our emotional gamut reflects that complexity. We have happy emotions, but we have just as many of those uncomfortable, sad emotions. And life is life. So we are in those uncomfortable places. And part of the wisdom that I try and share in this book is that it's okay to be in those places, do not think that you need to be Instagram happy, at, you know, the moment after this difficult thing happens. One of the, actually the event that made this book what it is was a very, very difficult event in my life that happened in the middle of writing this book on anxiety. So I'm deep into it and looking at the science and coming up with these tools. And I had this horrible double whammy of my father and my younger brother, both passing away of unexpected heart attacks within three months of each other. My brother was only 50 years old. Talk about, this was grief. This was not, it went beyond anxiety, it was grief. I had to put the book down, I had to heal. From that, just like you had to heal from the loss of the project. Everybody goes through those kinds of things. But what I realized is that I ended up appreciating those difficult emotions because you know what? That grief reflected the love. If I didn't have that grief, where would the love be? And that is how it comes up in these situations that most of us will experience during our lives. And I had this come to Jesus moment when I was recovering and I was doing a video workout and the trainer said, you know, with great pain comes great wisdom. And I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I just had this great pain, but the wisdom was the reflection of the love and the much, much deeper appreciation that I have for my life, and everybody that's left, and everybody that helped me get through. And how did that change my book? It changed the book, because I realized, well, anxiety isn't as deep a a sad event as, as loss of a family member, but it does come with very, very difficult, uncomfortable emotions. And if I could get wisdom out of this terrible event... What can I squeeze out of all the different kinds of anxieties that people experience? And that's how I came to the gifts or superpowers that do come from anxiety. So this book would not, it's, it's dedicated uh, to my father, and my brother, and the book would not have been the same if if I didn't have this experience.
4: Yeah. I I listened, mostly listened to the book. I read a little bit, but mostly listened to it. And I was on the elliptical when I read the chapter about, you know, that happening. And I I gasped and my husband kept running in. Are you okay? And I was like, oh, yes, I'm okay. Yeah. That's a a lot to handle in in one period of time. But as you said, Uh, and I know this so well that from, from great darkness can come light. And it's hard. You know, I think that one of the things my therapist told me when I was really in it was, you know, it was like a few weeks after it had happened. And I was just like, I just want to feel better. I don't want to feel so angry and I don't want to feel so sad. And she was like, you should be shooting this movie right now. How could you not feel that way? Yeah. It should be happening. You should be on set. And so I think that accepting these things and waiting, like you said, for the gift of, you know, from great struggle comes power. And I think that's... um such a tough thing to understand and be patient yes. to find, but, but is so powerful.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
2: One of the things I I was fascinated by in the book, Wendy, is This relationship that you describe between creativity and anxiety. Mm, mm, Yeah. You know, I think we often, and Lauren, you alluded to this, anxiety is just such a barrier to creativity. Like, Mm. I'm anxious. I don't want to sit down. I don't want to do the work. But Wendy, you not only say that we can use sort of creative problem solving to get a handle on our anxiety, but that in fact, anxiety itself can fuel creative impulses. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic?
3: Yeah, this insight comes from a beautiful work on creativity, the creative process. And I used this great book that my dear friend Julie Burstein wrote called Spark, How Creativity Works, where she basically analyzed some of the most creative people of our times and found that in so many cases, that amazingness that created the poem or the sculpture or the song came from a very difficult dark place. And I go back to my own origin story. The book was created and the approach to anxiety was created out of a very, very difficult, dark place. Did it cause fear and worry and just grief? Absolutely. But in the end, that was the origin. And time after time, she talks about different artists uh, and how they use their, their difficult situations to come up with the solution. And I love the idea of everybody creative, trying to write a script, trying to create a, a new program about anxiety. Every one of us that attempts these things has to face what Julie in her book calls the tragic gap, which is the difference between what exists in the world right now, which is my little vague idea of what might be for an Oscar winning script or a multi million viewed TED talk, and what could exist. And that is a deep, dark, scary chasm that we've all dealt with. I look down that chasm every day. Yeah, yeah. So, so do I. <laughs> but, you know, on the other side of that chasm, Is that beautiful thing that you, we all have this spark for. I think I have an idea of something that I might do. It's, it, it doesn't exist right now. There's this creation process. So getting over that tragic gap, that deep, dark chasm requires a genesis. And that is hard. And yes, people are stopped by that. It's just too hard. But just be inspired by what could be on the other side and all the people that did that, maybe not on the first time or the second time, but maybe on the 10,000th time. And it is a part of the creative process. And there's no magic pill. I mean, I would take 100 of them if I if there's a creativity pill. There is none. And creativity and that process and getting over the tragic gap comes with fear. It comes with anxiety, again, that you have to realize those are natural human emotions. And sometimes that, that can fuel you, that can get inspire you to step off and fall and hurt yourself the first time. And then you get up again and you try it a second time because uh, you have a better idea. So that's how I get over my own tragic gap in when my page is blank and I have a, a, an article due in two weeks, which I do. So I'm with you. Oh my God, two weeks. That's so much time. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thank you. Yeah, I'll talk to myself in that way.
4: Uh, I mean, you know, I couldn't help but think of a story in your book about, and I don't remember the person's name, but a young person who graduated from college and who was, you know, in a funk and living in his parents' basement. Ah, yeah. And basically his change was booking a flight to go work in Costa Rica, I want to say. Costa Rica, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where he was gonna teach English and build houses and yada, yada. And, and that yeah. really knocked him out of the funk. And I think, you know, whether it be creative or or more practical, you have to make a choice and take an action. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I was in like, and I'll say it in quotes or whatever, in like a writer's block, right? And I hadn't written in like a couple of weeks. And I was telling my therapist, like, I have written and I don't I can't write and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, But if you put the fingers on the keyboard, and I was like, well, no. And so for me, I've never once actually sat in front of my computer with an open document and not typed something.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: I think that the fear to open the document mm. and put your fingers on the keyboard is what stops most people. Because if you do it, something will come out. It may not be the right thing. You may have to write 10 versions of it. Yeah. But you have to do it. Yes. And, thinking about, and you can think about an idea to death. Yeah. And it'll just stay in your head over and over and over again. And until you actually try to do it, but you have to make a choice. Like, I mean, just like anything, we stay stuck until we make the choice to unstick, whether it be creative, emotional, physical, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Yeah. And that's a beautiful description of one of the superpowers, one of my favorite superpowers in the book, which is the superpower of empathy that comes from your own particular form of anxiety. So let me describe it from what you just said. You suffer from fear of writer's block, fear of writing. And the superpower that you have is you have a million things that you could say to me To help me. You could recognize my writer's block because you've seen it in yourself. You know what to say because your therapist has said this. You've you've said things to yourself that have helped. You would tell me, you know, sit in front of your computer, type something down. You this is a gift that you have because of your anxiety to help other people. And I love this one because in this day and age, we there's nothing more that the world needs than more empathy and especially more empathy that comes from your own particular form of anxiety. So that is your superpower. It's my superpower. It's everybody's superpower. Love that.
0: Coming up after the break, why exercise is like a neurochemical bubble bath. Plus what you can learn about managing your anxiety from Hamilton creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda. We'll be right back. You know that satisfied sensation that washes over you after you go for a run or lift weights or take a hike? Wendy calls it a neurochemical bubble bath. Exercise releases a whole range of mood-boosting neurochemicals, which makes it the perfect tincture when you need to turn bad anxiety into good.
3: So exercise is another very powerful science-backed tool to decrease your levels of anxiety. And it works in a different way than that breath work that I mentioned, activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Every single time you move your body, you are releasing a whole set of neurochemicals in your brain. I like to call it a neurochemical bubble bath that you are giving yourself. (laughs) And that bubble bath includes neurotransmitters that you've all heard of. Dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, endorphins and all of these things have been associated with either positive mood states or decreasing depression, anxiety, hostility, those those negative affective mood states. And so this is the reason why you're not feeling good. it's just like too much you can't nothing is flowing in your writing. you simply go outside, take a little walk, not even a jog, just just a walk outside you feel better. Even that walk is starting to release those neurochemicals, very powerful, immediate effect. This is free. I'm not selling a pill. It's just the science of what we know is happening in your brain. So these are two powerful things. The monk showed us the effect of the breathing and, and exercisers all over the world. The first caveman or cavewoman that ran away was also getting that bubble bath. Let's take advantage of that as well. Powerful tool. I love that. Um, can we talk about the Lin-Manuel Miranda tool? Of course. Um,
4: <laughs> it just seems like a fun one to bring up. I know he's everywhere uh, these yes. days. Didn't know he'd be in the toolbox, but... Yes,
3: yes, yes. People are often surprised to find Lin-Manuel Miranda in there. So here's how that happened. I was in the midst of writing the book and and trying to come up with tools and just thinking all the time, what, what else can I do? What what am I using? A lot of these tools are the ones that I use myself. But this one came from a little trip I took to a bookstore, and I pulled out this cute little book, and it was a book full of tweets that Lin-Manuel Miranda sends to himself in the morning and in the evening. Uh, So, So, uh, good morning, good night, pep talks. Are these pep talks that you give yourself?
2: Yes, Yes. so I do this radical thing where I'm actually nice on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Tell us,
3: where can we find you?
2: (laughs) Lin underscore Manuel. And I started in 2012, it was really my way of checking my own Twitter addiction. I said, if I say good morning and good night, then I won't be on at three in the morning. I won't be on, I've, I've already said hello, these are my office hours. Um, right. And and it's sort of, I think it's telling that it's become this weird sort of oasis of kindness uh, on social media where I, I sort of f- try to find a different way to say good morning. Often it's me talking to myself, it's me being really sleepy and being like, oh, well, I'm gonna be ver- on TV very early in the morning. So let me say something to wake myself up. And it, the more, Personal I get with it, I find the more it resonates with people. And so
3: And so I thought I love this idea. So the challenge is can you tweet to yourself like Lynn Manuel Miranda? What would Lynn Manuel Miranda say to you if he were you? And uh, I just love that idea because it's playful, you can do it with your friends, you can do it with your family. You know, it gets to the general category of laughter and humor, which is such a wonderful way to increase those positive emotions, decrease feelings of anxiety, depression. Well, uh, your husband uh, and all of his movies have been contributing to millions of people's, you know, positive mood states and decreased anxiety levels. All of those comedy movies, the stand-up specials that I, I binge watch sometimes. I have a favorite friend who I get to talk to tonight, actually, who is my funniest friend. And I always just FaceTime her when I need a little lift because she'll always say something silly and funny. And everybody has a friend like that. Either they could FaceTime or, or see face-to-face or mask-to-mask. Um, and so powerful tools. Okay, I will be straight. There are not as many neuroscience studies on laughter itself. I don't think it's serious enough for neuroscientists to do uh, randomized control studies on. But it is effective and it does increase serotonin and dopamine levels in your brain. So I recommend them.
4: I love that. I was feeling grumpy the other morning. On the weekends, my husband and I lay in bed and watch television and you know, whatever. And I was just feeling grumpy. And, and just randomly, he found an amazing video on Twitter, or whatever, of someone just falling down a number of times huh. uh, while shooting a video. It was like a hockey thing, someone on ice skates. And it was amazing. And like, and I laughed so hard that I was like choking. And like, it does knock you out. Like it really can, like, you know what I mean? Like someone like yeah. literally like smacking you in the face and being like, oh shit. Yeah. Okay. I feel yeah." Okay, I'm better. I'm I'm not going down the spiral. Thanks for grabbing me before I got down there.
3: It's, you know, again, something in us and uh, just like we forget to talk to ourselves, like we were our own dogs, we forget to you know engage in in these things. And it's yeah. so easy to find things that you already know what makes you laugh. It's probably already in your Instagram or your Twitter feed. I know. I love baby alpacas. That's that's my little thing. <laughs> I love little videos. You can you can look at my Instagram feed. Lots of little videos of baby alpacas.
4: Lots of baby alpacas. Oh my God, that's funny. That's
2: niche. I like that.
3: That's
4: hilarious. I follow a lot of dogs, a lot of people falling down. I really get a lot of oh. great joy from people falling down. I don't know what that says about me, but um, <laughs> it really makes me laugh.
3: That you like classic comedy. I mean, Charlie Chaplin, there's lots of, you know, history there.
4: A good fart joke will get me every time. Um, so I'm mature that way, I guess. But, um, so, you know, the book is, I think, you know, useful on turning the volume down, on anxiety, right? So what is the next step in the good anxiety program after one turns the volume down?
3: So turning the volume down allows us not to be so reactive to everything that comes in. And it starts to allow this emotion of anxiety, which again is a natural human emotion, to be able to do its thing. What does anxiety do? It's not the thing that you just want to throw out the door. It is Focusing your attention on what you're concerned about, whether it's a script or the job that you're uh, applying for, and um, just highlighting, okay, this is something important to me. Now, if you just think of it as just pointing out, this is important, let's not procrastinate here, let's do everything, that becomes very useful. And the value of turning that volume down is that you're able to See that in a more, uh, with more perspective and use those uncomfortable emotions to just direct your attention and just to notice things instead of having to bring you down into this terrible spiral that will then take you a long time to recover from. Yeah. But the most important thing I think that turning the volume down does is that it opens up the door to be able to appreciate gifts or superpowers of anxiety, which I think, uh, again, it came from that origin story of the book that I talked about. And it's my favorite part of the book is the gifts or superpowers.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I so agree with that. And I'm trying to learn how to use mine more, that's for sure. So it's, like I said, it's really helpful and I'm going to give it to so many people because I Because I know so many people who have anxiety because everyone does because it's human. (laughs) And I think that, like, honestly, like, that's such an important takeaway is that, like, humans aren't built to be happy 100% of the time and to feel perfect and light and airy. That's just not how we were designed. And learning how to navigate those different feelings, I think, is, you know, is the work we have to do. So, you know, I think we're really lucky to have the tools that you give us in your book. So thank you.
3: Thank you. Well, thank you
2: both so much for taking time out of your busy days and good luck with your script notes call and good luck with your interview prep. It's been really wonderful to talk with both of you and to find ways that we can all be a little more patient with ourselves and a little more empathetic. um, Thank you. When in doubt, watch videos of people falling
0: down, I guess. That's
4: right. Good lesson. Good lesson. (laughs)
0: Would you like to hear what Wendy thinks are the five biggest ideas from good anxiety? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out her book bite. And don't stop there. In our app, you'll find hundreds of book summaries read to you by the authors themselves, professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free podcasts, and tons of other benefits. Everybody's doing it. Download the Next Big Idea app today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. If you think we've earned it, we really appreciate it. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, The Wondery app, The Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Many thanks to Wendy Suzuki and Lauren Miller-Rogan. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer was Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.